0: morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3 as we're continuing our series, Exodus Saved for Glory. And also um, keep your bulletin nearby, uh, if you would, as we're going to be referencing that, that passage that Sally read earlier. Uh, the passage is also printed in your bulletin, um, and it's on page 46 in the Pew Bible. Well, a couple of weeks back, Mark preached from this same chapter where Moses has been called by God out of a burning bush. God is speaking to him and commanding him to go rescue his people, and he's radically altering the course of Moses' life, much like he radically altered the course of Abraham's life, as Sally read earlier. I want you to take a moment and consider, try to imagine what Moses or Abraham's life would have been like if God had never interrupted. Abraham, or Abram as he was first called, he probably would have stayed in the land of his father. Still would have had a lot of possessions, probably. But also a barren wife and no one, no heir to inherit his wealth. Much less the promise that he would be made into a great nation. And that his descendants would bless all the other nations of the earth. And as for Moses, he probably would have stayed right where he was. If you recall, he grew up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But he fled after murdering an Egyptian. An Egyptian man who was beating a Hebrew, one of Moses' kinsmen. And he wound up in the land of Midian, where he is now. And at the beginning of this chapter, he is tending his father-in-law's flock. And if not for God's intervening, he might have had a pretty decent life there. Probably would have gained wealth along the way stayed and grown old with his wife. But then God appears and calls to him, and his whole life is upended. You see, we don't know God unless he reveals himself to us. Today, we wouldn't know anything about God if he hadn't chosen people throughout history to hear his words and to record them. And in the divine dialogue in our passage this morning, God speaks about himself, his name and his deeds. And then he calls Moses to fulfill his purpose, just as he calls us. So read along with me, Exodus 3, 13 through 22. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, "'unless compelled by a mighty hand. "'So I will stretch out my hand "'and strike Egypt with all the wonders "'that I will do in it. "'After that, he will let you go. "'And I will give this people favor "'in the sight of the Egyptians, "'and when you go, you shall not go empty, "'but each woman shall ask of her neighbor "'and any woman who lives in her house "'for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. "'You shall put them on your sons "'and on your daughters, "'so you shall plunder the Egyptians.' This is God's word, and it accomplishes whatever he wills. Let's pray to ask God that we would have the ears to hear it this morning. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for making yourself known. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So imagine that you are a Hebrew slave of the Egyptians. You're growing up there, and all you've known in your whole life is serving Egypt. And maybe you ask your parents, have we always been slaves here? Well, I don't know how good the Hebrews were at passing along all their history. If they were anything like my family, you can lose the whole history in the space of like two generations, and then you've got to subscribe to Ancestry.com or something to get it all back. And clearly, they don't have that luxury. So you ask your parents, You know, have we always been here in Egypt? And they tell you the story of Joseph, how he became a ruler in the land of Egypt and saved his whole family, your ancestors, from starvation. That's in the book of Genesis. Or maybe they tell you also the story of Abraham, how God told him that his descendants would be slaves, afflicted servants in Egypt for 400 years. And hey, hasn't it it been about that long? Maybe the people of Israel had a good, long, collective memory like that, remembering God's revelations throughout the years, as well as all the promises and curses and blessings foretold by their ancestors. But it's just as likely that all the specifics had faded. As a child of slaves in Egypt, you would have grown up in a nation where Pharaoh is connected to the real powerful gods, as far as you're concerned. After all, he owns everything and everyone and you exist to do His will. Sure, the nation of Israel worships a God as well, as far as you know. They've kept certain traditions, passed down from their ancestors. They still circumcise their sons. They may still speak of God Most High, Yahweh, the shield of Abraham, and hope to be delivered out of slavery, but it's been years since anyone's heard from Him. One commentator says that we can... (laughs) assume that the faith of Moses and the Israelites had grown somewhat faint and rusty? Well, it's best not to speculate too much. The nation of Israel had multiplied to great numbers, and perhaps there was a whole range of belief within the nation, from the very devout to the totally hopeless. What we do know is, from the end of chapter 2, we know that they cried out for help. And it's God who hears their groaning and moves to act because of his covenant with their fathers. But keep in mind that the people of Israel, they didn't have a book. They didn't have Genesis or any part of the Bible yet. They lived at that time based on whatever they remembered. And they may not have remembered very much at all. Our knowledge of God affects how we live. If we're mindful of Him and in communion with Him, it makes a big difference to our lives. But here's the problem. Even in the present, when we have access to God's very words, we still live forgetful of Him. We often neglect to grow in our knowledge of Him. We forget Him. And it's true that before we come to know Him, we live ignorant of Him and in rebellion against Him. But even if we do know Him, we fail to remember who he is and what he has done and what difference that makes. These words recorded by Moses after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, they teach God's people their identity, which is rooted in history and in the deeds that God has accomplished for them. And what God has accomplished is a result of who he is. We're going to see this morning that God wants his people to remember him both who he is and what he has done. We're going to look at his name, his promise, and his power. First, his name. God's name is unique in its glory. It reveals attributes about his nature. What kind of attributes, what kind of traits does God divulge to Moses? Well, he first reveals his changelessness. Look at verses 13 and 14. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. See, Moses wants proof and credibility. The Hebrew slaves are surrounded by a culture that worships a whole pantheon of gods. And Moses is being sent to bring them up out of Egypt to worship the one true God. And he assumes they're going to want some kind of identifier. So he asks, and who should I say sent me again? My wife and I and Lynn Mendelman, we sing in the Choral Society of the Hamptons. And sometime recently, I was talking to a man in, in my uh, singing section, my tenor section. And I forget if I was talking about looking for a new place to live or about a restaurant I was about to go to. But he said, he told me to look for a certain person and tell him, Sam sent you. Now, I'm not going to tell you his real name, but you've all had this happen, right? Someone says, tell them I sent you, and then when you get where you're going, you're supposed to get treated better. Have you ever tried it, and the person's like, who? And you've got to explain to them where they know your friend, and you feel like an idiot. Well, I didn't try it for this guy from choir. I was like, this guy's not going to remember this guy. I'm jaded a bit. But if you're sent somewhere... In the name of someone else, you want to make sure that the name you invoke has some weight to it. It at least had better be recognizable. So Moses asks, what if they ask me, what is his name? But I'll bet Moses wants to know for himself as well. Who is this God that's upending my life and sending me to deliver the people of Israel? And God doesn't answer how we would expect. His answer is a mystery that we ponder even to this day. I am Who I am. That is not a normal name. It's not even a noun. It's a verb phrase. And it's a massive glorious claim. It's a proclamation of his eternal existence. I said changelessness before. God is unchangeable. He's immutable. Another way to translate God's answer is. I will be what I will be. And there's not a human, dead or alive, that can make that claim. God is the only self-existent person, the ultimate reality, the being from whom we derive our being. Tell them, I am has sent me to you. So God first makes a statement to Moses about himself and his changelessness, his eternality. And then he reveals once again the name that he has been called throughout history, And his name is connected with what he's done for the people he has chosen. Verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the proper name for God, often translated as the word Lord. It's four letters of the Hebrew alphabet that we sometimes pronounce as Yahweh. And it's closely related to that verb phrase from earlier, I am. It's connected to the verb to be. So God's name is tied to his forever existence, to his self-sustaining. This name is one that God revealed in the past to Abraham and to Jacob. And now for Moses, God points to history and to his covenant relationship with the fathers of the Hebrews. And God attaches his name to his people. This is how he is to be remembered, how he is to be called to mind, by his unique holiness, by his independent existence, and by what he has done for his people, and by the covenants he makes with them and keeps. God wants us to recall to mind the works he's done on behalf of his people, our fathers and mothers in the faith, Hannah Faye and I are following a Bible reading plan along with some groups on Facebook, or at least I'm struggling to keep up anyway. And if you read read Genesis, you see that God consistently reveals himself this way. When he appears or speaks to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, he identifies himself as the God of their fathers. To Abram, he says, I'm the Lord who brought you out of your father's land. And to Isaac, he says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. To Jacob, whose name is later changed to Israel, he says, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. He's been saying, I am the same God, it's me. And when he revealed himself, those men would often build some kind of altar or pillar, a way to commemorate, commemorate the spot where it happened. Well, here in our passage, God tells Moses, I'm Yahweh. And this is my memorial, my name. Verse 15 goes slightly differently in another translation. It says, this is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. My memorial name. It's meant to conjure up all the stories of God's revelation and work throughout the centuries. Later on, after God has brought Israel out of Egypt, he's going to attach his name to his people once again. By his name and what he's done for them. I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And based on this, he's going to command them to worship him as the one true God, the only God capable of saving them. Do you relate to God in this personal way? Do you call to mind what he's done for his people? Do you have a story to tell? About what he's done for you as one of his sons or his daughters? Are you secure in the promises that he's attached to his name? The name of God. Now let's look very quickly at God's promise. Moses is now given a script, verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God has granted Moses authority and credibility, based on his identity, of course, to go to the elders of Israel and renew God's promise in their minds. Earlier in the service, Sally read from Genesis 15 and we heard that God had foretold all of this to Abraham, both the slavery and the deliverance of God promises to bring them out to the land that he promised to Abraham as a possession all those years ago. And the land is now fertile and prosperous. You see, years later, Jacob or Israel had come to Egypt to escape famine and starvation in that very same land. Well, after 400 years, the land is now described as flowing with milk and honey. It's a good land. It will provide for them. It's their rightful possession because God himself has given it to them. God's told Moses to renew his promise in Israel's mind. Now let's look at his power to bring this promise about. We now learn from this passage that God knows the future. In fact, he brings it to pass. He does not depend on anything or anyone. In fact, everything depends on him. Nothing happens outside his decree. Those are earth-shattering things to say. But that's what we find in his word. He's going to outline for Moses exactly what's about to happen. Look at verse 18. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. The truth is that God's promises would be absolutely worthless if he lacked the power to fulfill them. And yes, God has power over nature. He's going to stretch out his hand to strike Egypt with wonders, but he also has the power to turn the hearts of people wherever he wants. We have three examples in these verses. First, God tells Moses that the elders of Israel are going to listen to his voice. Second, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, is first going to refuse their request and then change his mind after all of God's wonders. And third, God is going to give Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And this is really incredible. Egypt will be brought to its knees in every conceivable way, environmentally, economically, population-wise. And then every woman of Israel on their way out is going to ask their Egyptian neighbors for silver and gold and clothes. And the Egyptian women are going to say, here you go. And even this was foretold. In Genesis 15, 14, God told Abraham, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And I'm sure Abraham could not have even conceived of how God would bring about that promise. We hear about God's power over the hearts of people all over the Bible. Here's an example from the book of Proverbs. The king's heart is like channels of water, in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. To some people, this idea is disturbing. And I remember when God was pressing this truth on my mind. I was in college. I had just heard a sermon. And I was mulling it over for days. And I remember I was doing odd jobs at, I think I was painting at a friend's house in Quag. And this truth seemed to be reorganizing the neurons in my brain, and I don't think it was the paint fumes. It really was reordering the whole way that I saw the world. And you may buck against it, as I first did, but then the comfort comes. The hearts of people are in the hand of the Lord. What comfort, what hope, what confidence we can have as we live in the world, and especially as we seek for other people to come to know God. I have people in my family that I love very dearly, one of whom seems largely indifferent to the things of God, and the other of whom is trapped in rebellion and bitterness toward God. And I cry out to God for him to change their hearts. because It is in his power to do that. Of course, he displays that power in his own time, and his patience outlasts ours. <coughs> There were over 400 years between God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15 and his sending Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. God's not bound by time, but we sure are. And sometimes waiting for an eternal God can feel like an eternity. Long after Israel had possessed the land, they would actually incur God's wrath for dishonoring his name. And they would fail to bless other nations with the knowledge of the one true God as they were supposed to do. Instead, they would worship the gods of other nations. And eventually, despite warning after warning, they would be sent into exile. God would allow them to be conquered by other nations. But he would promise them another deliverer. And once again, after centuries of waiting, Jesus would be born. And Jesus, even though he was a man, would identify himself unmistakably with the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses. (laughs) The Jews of Jesus' time, the nation of Israel, they would have known the scriptures very well by that time, including this passage here in Exodus. And one day the Jews were bragging about being the descendants of Abraham, and they were grilling Jesus. This is all in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, by the way. The Jews were asking Jesus just who he thought he was, because he was making these astounding claims. He claimed to actually know Abraham. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I was. That's not really what he said. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And then they knew that he was identifying as God. He was claiming to exist eternally. And they were ready to kill him for blasphemy. And eventually Jesus was killed. But wait a minute. You may have noticed that there's a big part of verse 17 that I sort of glossed over. haven't really talked about it. Yes, it's true that Yahweh has promised land to Israel and he has the power to give it to them, but that land is already occupied by all the people that are listed in verse 17. So what's going to happen? Well, once again, there's a key to understanding this back in Genesis 15, which Sally read earlier and is in your bulletin. You can look at it. You can see that many of the group names in that list overlap with the list in this passage, but look at verse 16. That's the last sentence in the first paragraph. The Israelites will come back to the land in the fourth generation because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see that? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is their, their sin, their iniquity. It's not come to full fruition yet. But what does this tell us? How does it help us understand Well, it tells us that God is patient with sin. But we also know from this and other places in the Bible that once a nation totally rejects the ways of God and practices nothing but idolatry and injustice and oppression and murder and everything else, once they're full-blown, God will bring judgment on that nation. And that judgment is often in the form of being conquered by another nation. God even judges His own people, Israel, in the same way. But in this case, the iniquity, the sin of the people in that promised land would be judged through the nation of Israel. And yes, there would be death involved. Because when it comes to sin against a holy, eternal God, there's always death involved. Iniquity, sin, our sin, is always... Brought to an end either in judgment or in Jesus. Our sin is completed either in judgment or in Jesus. That is why Jesus came. To give his life to deliver us from the slavery of sin and the wrath of God. That we've earned by sinning against him. And maybe you're uncomfortable with the idea of a God who would be angry at sin. But when you consider the evil in the world. And even in your own heart. Recognize that it's truly a wonder that God would save or pardon anyone. You've been mistreated. You've mistreated others. None of us have lived the way that a perfect God requires. We've shown God dishonor, we've rebelled against Him. You can be sure that if God judges a nation, the nation has earned it. We all deserve judgment, but instead, our sin can be forgiven. You only have to believe. So is your sin going to end in judgment or will you turn away from it to trust Jesus for forgiveness? One time Jesus saved a woman from being stoned for adultery and he told her, go and sin no more. Our sin either ends in judgment or it ends in Jesus. Do you believe in him? We sing a song here with beautiful lyrics. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Our sin ends in either judgment or in Jesus. So repent. Find God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ. And then you will be counted among God's people. His redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and nation. You see, there are different ethnic groups around the world and many in this list. But spiritually speaking, there are only two races before God. Only two spiritual races, there are God's people who follow him by faith, or there are those who reject him and the gift of his son, Jesus. So I urge you to believe and be part of God's people. And then you will have the hope of an eternal home with God. You see, that was the true treasure of the promised land. The true treasure was God's promise that he would be Israel's God and that they would be his people. And Jesus' promise to his followers is that he will bring us to where he is. And we will always be with the Lord. That's our hope. If you're trusting in Christ alone for salvation and the future glory of eternal life, then you will inherit the earth as one of his people. And by the way, if you trust in Christ, the Bible calls you a true child of Abraham. It's those who follow Christ in faith who are children of Abraham. If that's you, then Jesus says, Do the works that Abraham did, that is, the works of obedience that flow from your faith in him, from your love for him. And also, be ready to endure hardship. Because notice that Abraham and Moses were promised both hardship and deliverance. Your descendants will be captives. Pharaoh's not going to listen. He's going to make your life harder before the ultimate deliverance. Well, Jesus, too, promises his followers both persecution and his eternal presence. He says, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So be ready to experience trouble for his name's sake, if in fact you follow Christ. Recently I heard a pastor say that there's not a Christian around who isn't paying for it in some way. And here's one example. Uh, My friend Dave Cook He's the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Riverhead, where my parents are still members. And this past summer, Dave's son got a job at Snowflake Ice Cream Shop. Did I say ice cream shop? Or ice flake shop or something? Sorry. <laughs> anyway, it came up in conversation that he was a Christian. And just that knowledge made one of his coworkers angry. And she called him a terrible name. And it was a slanderous and profane name. I'm not even going to repeat it here. But it wasn't true. But Jesus said his people would be hated for his name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And that's the way of God's people. We endure trusting in God and his promises which are founded on who he is. This God who intrudes, who intervenes in the lives of his people who appears to Abraham, makes a promise, fulfills it, and then promises even more, ever more blessing, ever more justice, ever more love and more of himself, culminating in the arrival of Jesus to make peace for us with God and guarantee that we'll always be with him for eternity. We're to remember God, his name and his works, his constant and eternal existence, the only true and glorious constant in the universe. He never changes in all his love, in all his wrath towards sin, and in all his loving kindness toward his people, and in all his might and ability and the sacrifice of Jesus to bring about the good of his people. If you're in Christ, then I am is for you. He who never changes will bring about his promises by his power for you because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We Thank you for the history of all you've done for your people. And we thank you for Christ who came to give himself, not to condemn the world, but that many would be saved, that we can have faith and security and salvation, that we can look forward to the promise of eternity spent with you. I pray that you give us the strength, give us the faith to believe first, and give us the strength to endure hardship as people who belong to you, help us look toward the reward of your presence. In Jesus. Name.